we have uh, been in a series of messages where we've been going just expositionally through the book of Genesis, letting God's word feed us and nourish us. And we took a couple weeks out of that. Uh, one, when I was sick in an emergency setting, and last week just to, to kind of have a family conversation and a dialogue about just how to uh, interpret the events of our day. And uh, now we're back in Genesis 12, incredibly applicable passage to us, and I've got a question as we get into this uh, this morning. Have you ever been in a place where you were at a crossroads in life before? A place where you know the, the path forward wasn't real cut and dry, where it wasn't clear what obedience would look like and wouldn't look like. I've been in one of those places before a, a number of times, actually. I'll just share one of those with you as we open up this morning. Um, when I was uh, 20 years old, um, I was celebrating um, Christmas with my father, and what had, what had happened was we met, um, I, was, I was thinking that God was calling me to Las Vegas, Nevada to help uh, plant this church with a friend of mine because Bible college just seemed incompatible. It seemed like I wasn't going to be a pastor, but I wanted to go and explore this with my friend anyway. And so I kind of had that plan moving forward. I was going to move in February, and it was going to be wonderful. And so then I'm spending Christmas with my father. And you guys, a lot of you know my story. Um, uh, my story involves a lot of uh, just, you know, sin and brokenness in my family. Uh, God is, has redeemed that and is redeeming that in a lot of ways, but divorce, it has effects. And so one of those effects was I didn't get to see my little brother for a long time. So I, I, from the age of seven until this day that I'm talking about, I'm, uh, you know, 13 years or, or 13 years old was about six years. And so he came to visit us over Christmas. My father had worked it all up where we could spend Christmas together. And so my dad and I are sitting in the uh, Louisville airport in Kentucky and my brother uh, gets off the plane. And uh, it's, it's a really troubling sight to see just kind of uh, how, how much he had been neglected. Uh, and his mom, you know, was unfortunately on heroin and all kinds of stuff we found out. And so the Lord began uh, just um, kind of breaking my heart for my brother in a new way that day. And so um, my father, on the other hand, um, and he would tell you this, had never raised a child before. And so here I'm in this place, and you can kind of feel it, right? I mean, I was in this place where I felt like God was calling me to Vegas but it sure seemed like God was calling me to take care of my brother. It just felt that tension. And so over the course of a week, I was just praying and seeking the Lord and I wasn't eating. I was just torn up on the inside, just not knowing what God wanted me to do. And at the end of the week, I, I, had just, I just felt this confirmation that I wasn't supposed to stay in Kentucky. I was supposed to go to Vegas. And you can see kind of the, the fruit of that decision in part is this church, because we never would have ended up in Atlanta. I never would have met Megan um, if not for making that decision. But on the other side, I would have robbed my father of the joy of raising his son. And it wasn't perfect. It was painful. You know, my dad was calling me, asking me for parenting advice. It was a little bit weird. But, you know, God's family is a little weird sometimes, right? And so God began putting those pieces together as we sought him. Uh, and, and the thing I want to tell you about this is that, that that decision, that crossroads and how to navigate that was made through prayer, not planning. It was made through waiting, not working. You see, the tendency of Christians 
is for, for us to treat our faith almost like, a, like a, a, a ship that's in orbit, a rocket ship that's in orbit. You know, the gospel has converted us and sent us into orbit, and now it's kind of all up to us, right? But really, what we see is that our relationship with God drives everything with us. Now, how does this relate to where we're at in the scriptures today? Well, Abram, the father of the faith, was in a crisis situation in Genesis chapter 12. And so here's our big idea of where we're gonna head today as we open this up, is this, it's the grace of God to dismantle our plans when they lead away from his promise to us in Christ. It's the grace of God to dismantle our plans. Okay, let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 here as we dig into this. And I've just got three observations I wanna sink our teeth into this morning. The first one is this, is that the gift of faith is often followed by the gift of famine. The second one uh, is this, is that famine has the potential to lead us far from God's promise. And thirdly, is this, that God brings us back through grace. Amen. He does that to us. So let's look at this. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 um, says this, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So at at face value, this sounds like common sense, doesn't it? It sounds like, yeah, sure, why wouldn't he go find food? Well, you gotta know a little bit about Abram's story. So you show the map up there, Holly. So a little bit about Abram's journey was that in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through nine, we hear that God has this miraculous a way of meeting Abram and calling him out of darkness to himself. You know, Abram was from, uh, he was from a good family, but it was not a godly family. And there's a difference there, right? And so God called him to himself, which meant that he left his family, that he left his land, and he went from Ur, which is kind of what is the Babylonian area, uh, up to Haran, and then down through Galilee, um, where Jesus spent most of his life, and then to, you know, in the promised land where Bethel and Jerusalem are. And then, you know, Egypt is just uh, south and west of where he's at right there. And so what we know is that God, uh, with confidence, we know that God called him to this place. Now, the question is, did God call him to Egypt after that or not? We don't have any evidence of that. So I'm not going to stand up here and say it was sinful for, for uh, Abram to go to Egypt, but it was sure different if, if God was calling him that way. So Abram is coming off this mountaintop experience uh, with God. And you know, I I love the mountains. In fact, I would say this, Megan and I get to the mountains as often as we can, and when we get there, we stay as long as we can, right? I love the mountains. Here's the thing I've noticed about the mountains, especially the really big mountains, like if you go to the Rocky Mountains uh, or places like that, is that the mountains are great for views, but fruit does not grow in the mountains, right? There is a tree line, nothing grows above it. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about us is that, you know, Abram had, well, Abram had experienced this mountaintop experience, this calling from God. Um, many of us in this room have experienced this calling from God. We've been converted, we've, we've heard the gospel, we trust in Jesus. Um, the, the problem with the, with the mountains is that fruit doesn't grow on the mountains. You know where fruit grows? In the valley. Fruit grows in the valley, and if we play this metaphor out, the valley is the, play, the place of thorns and thistles and pain, isn't it? 
But that's where the fruit grows. And so what we see Abram doing here is kind of taking this newfound faith that he's got, and now the, the road has kind of ran out from what it looks like God has done, and he begins to take the wheel back from the Lord, right? He, he begins to kind of chart it out from himself. And we, we notice the same thing about our own stories, right? This was the place where the, the faith that Abram was promised needed to be activated, right? Needed to be utilized. Um, and because faith, faith is like a muscle, right? When, when faith uh, isn't exercised, we experience atrophy, right? We experience the loss of that gift of faith in our lives. So, so Abram goes from this, this moment of receiving God's call, knowing confidently what God's called him to do, and then a famine strikes his life. And you've got two options whenever famine strikes your life. And, and when I say famine today, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a metaphor for suffering, right? For struggle, for trial, uh, famine. Um, you've got two options, right? You can try to manufacture a way forward, which this is what Abram does here, or you can wait on the Lord to provide another way. Those are kind of the two trajectories that you can go on. And, and I'll just make note of this as we're going to see this in the book of Genesis, is that famine accompanies every patriarch's spiritual uh, progression in the Bible. Think about this. When, when God calls Abram, there's a famine. When God calls Isaac, there's a famine in Genesis 26. Uh, Jacob slash Israel, his, his name changes. He experiences famine. You read that in Genesis 42. And then Joseph experiences famine in, in Genesis 47, 11 through 13. But what I also want you to notice before you go blaming it all on famine, right, is this is how does God put their family back together in the end of Genesis? Is it through a famine? It's through a famine, right? He brings their family back together and Joseph extends grace to his brothers who have betrayed him and they were together because of a famine. So when, when you think about famine in your own life, maybe in the past, right now you might be in it or in the future, I want you to consider the gift that famine might be offering you this morning. That the, the, the suffering, that the trial, that the struggle might be offering in you. So the question is, but does our theology have space for famine, for the experience of struggle, for the experience of pain, for the experience of the thorns and the thistles of life, the things that don't go our way? Because God's vision for our theology is one that includes famine. But so often in our lived experience, we get so caught off guard we get, we, get, uh, we get so burdened by the, the circumstances that we would call famine because, because we don't expect that God would present us with these opportunities as a way to grow us. So, so what Joseph does when he experiences famine is he goes to where? Egypt. Now, another, um, I guess, parallel or a, a theme, that's a better word, that I want you to see as we, as we go through the book of Genesis is that Egypt, even though Egypt is a beautiful place, it's a great place, I have Egyptian friends, I've not been there, but I hear great things. Egypt is a place that God loves, but in the Bible, Egypt represents a place of false security and bondage. That's what it represents in the Bible. So just for example, Isaiah writes about, about this in Isaiah 31, check this out. He says, <clears throat> Woe to those who go down to Egypt and for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. 
but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Isn't this textbook for what Abram's doing right here? He doesn't consult the Lord. He goes down to Egypt because he knows that there's strength there, that there's food there, there's provision there, there's care there. Now, how different would Abram's story be if he would have stopped and paused and waited and just said, God, you brought me to this promised land. Now you have to provide for me. You called me away from everything that was secure, everything that was beautiful, everything that was safe. And now you've led me out here. But what Abram did is what so many of us do. He went into planning mode, right? He's like, I got to figure this out. We're going to make this happen. You know, Sarah's going to be great. And so my question, as you think about this is, where is famine in your story this morning? In where, maybe where has it been as you look back? Those places where the tracks run out, where the road stops, where you don't know where to go next. Where is that in your story? It might be facing you this morning. It might have faced you last year, but it'll definitely face you this year to some degree, right? Because if we don't have a theology and a category for famine, our default mode is what? Plan, right? Get to work. And that's not what God calls us to do. How much, how much does the Bible call us to wait on him and to have patience and, and to wait for him, right? Over and over and over and over again. But as Americans, we like, we like change the definition of patience and waiting, right? We're like, yeah, that didn't really matter. Those people just, they didn't, they didn't have enough, uh, you know, vigor and zeal to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And we look down at people who wait on the Lord. But what we see here is that, and what I want to remind you of, is that in the Christian journey, those that, are, that belong to God who have been given the gift of faith, that God expects that you will need to grow. Most of us, when we are confronted with opportunities for growth, we think that it is a problem. And so what we try to do is try to get ourselves out of the pain as much as we can, right? Um, Ephesians 4.15, I want to remind you of just Paul's vision for the church in Ephesus. He says this, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So when you think about this, what we see is that the whole reason Jesus came is so that we might grow up into him. I think so many times we get so disappointed when we realize that we have to be sanctified, that, that salvation is, is, a, is, we are justified at conversion, but salvation is, is sanctification also, which is a journey, Right? It's, and so that faith uh, that God gives us, we are constantly presented with opportunities to exercise that gift of faith, which often is when we find ourselves in places where the next step of obedience isn't quite clear. And that's not a problem to God. That's what I want you to remember this morning because um, so, so much of the Christian journey for us is it seems like we're allergic to actually exercising faith. Like we like do anything we can to not have to live by faith. And, um, and so that's one part of it. The other question I want to ask you is, as we dig more into this is, what is the Egypt that you prefer when the gift of famine strikes your life? Because, you know, we, we blame it on Egypt or whatever. It's, we've all got our own Egypts, right? We've all got the things that we run to for security and provision. We've all got the things that seduce us to believe that we can be satisfied and have life outside of waiting on God and trusting in the promise of Christ. We've all got those things. And so I wanna encourage you, even throughout the whole sermon and, and it was received the Lord's table this morning, to confess those things and bring them into the light because if not, you're gonna keep running back to them. This is what we do. We keep running back to things that are in the darkness because we think no one else knows about it. 
But everything is light to him, right? Adversity, church, is a gift that builds the life of faith. It completes our salvation. And in James 1, I don't have it on the screen for you, but James 1, James comes out of the gate. He's the little brother of Jesus, right? He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Um, He comes out of the gate and he says, what? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith Faith produces uh, endurance, and endurance produces steadfastness. And he says something like, so that we can be uh, complete, lacking in nothing. Um, And so the thing that we're running from is the thing that finishes our faith, is what I want you to see. Now, Abram didn't have that category, right? And so he took matters into his own hand. Often we don't either, but God is gracious. So let's let's keep working through this passage. Let's see how the wills fall off of Abraham's journey here. Second thing I want you to see is that famine has the potential to lead us far from God's promise. Okay, let me read this for us. When he was about to enter Egypt, so Abram's on the way down to Egypt. He's left the promised land. He says to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Thanks, honey, right? Thanks. But there's this but coming, and it's a really bad one. Listen, he says, when the Egyptians see you, you know, they're going to think you're beautiful too. Uh, and they're going to say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. So he's, he's projecting a future that he doesn't know exists yet, Right? Doesn't that accompany our planning often? We begin projecting a future that it may, may or may not be our future. So he's doing that here. And he says, um, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, so here's where the wheels really start to fall off. You think you've got problems in your marriage? Abram might have more, okay? So here's what's happening here. You know, we're not sure if it was sinful to go to Egypt or not, but he's there, uh, and he begins manufacturing the plan. Sarah's about 65 years old, and apparently she is like drop-dead gorgeous, right? Uh, and so, so what, what happens is that, is that um, you know, Abram begins devising this plan. Now, what Abram says actually isn't completely false. You know, after the flood, uh, there were eight people left, right? And we came from those eight people. So some of those people were related a little more closely than other people. So Abram and Sarah, Genesis 20, 12 actually tells us that they have the same father. And so it wasn't a complete lie. It, it wasn't the complete truth either, right? Because he was, he was married to her. Um, but here's how, uh, you know, it's a little weird to us, but that's kind of how it played out then, that, that close after the flood. What Abram is doing, and, and as you see it even in, even in the, um, the word my, how many times it's used, is that Abram has this tunnel vision for his own preservation. And that's really what deception is a lot of times for us. It's, it's, it's self-preservation by the way of deception. Deception in this situation is the temptation to project the appearance of truth 
for the purpose of self-preservation. So, so to make it seem like you're walking in the truth, but to really be having this other set of agendas that you're working through on the side. So Abram isn't thinking about protecting and providing for his elderly wife. He's thinking about how can I take advantage of the fact that she's so beautiful that I could get maybe rich and have favor with the Pharaoh. And believe it or not, Abram gets really, really rich because of this scenario that he's drawn up. It actually goes according to plan to some degree until we get to the next point. And so, but the, the, even, even in all of that stuff that he gets, all the servants and all the animals and stuff, that actually creates a problem for him. And we're gonna see that in the next chapter when we look at Abram and his, and his cousin uh, Lot, um, or his nephew, rather. Um, but I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I can relate to beginning to set out an agenda and plan for my own life when it's not clear how to get what you need, right? It's not, it's not clear how to eat. And so he begins making this plan. And I think that happens, and we're gonna see this from Colossians 3, but that happens when the problems overshadow the promise of God. That, that's what begins to happen when we begin f- to get fixated on the problems that surround us. And you see this happen over and over in David's life in the Psalms. My enemies surround me. He just feels this overwhelming pressure in his life. It happens over and over for us when the problems become bigger than the promise of God. And so, um, you know, even, even when we talked last week, you know, we could think of a lot of problems that we have in the world right now. Some of them, you know, more for our country, some of them more for our family, some of them more for us. And the temptation is to believe, is to focus so much on those that we lose sight of the promise of what God has for us. So what is that promise? That promise, as we talked about even in the baptism, is that he will be our God and we'll be his people and he'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. That's the promise. That's the future. And so the things that threaten us, whether that be physical famine or metaphorical famine in your life, those things try, the enemy uses to try to take our gaze off Jesus, off the promise, and put them on ourselves. And that's why waiting is, is like a, you know, is like taking a knife to the devil. Because we're saying, God, you've got to figure it out. You've got to provide. You've got to make this happen. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3 about how we can, we can keep our eyes fixated on the promise. He says this in the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you're a Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So how, how do we put this into play? Is this, a, is this an algorithm? Is this you know, something we punch into Google Colossians 3 and our self-driving car just takes us right there? No, it's not like that, right? I think when, when he says set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are uh, below, what, he's, what is he telling us to set our mind on? Is it, a set, is it a certain set of doctrine? Is it this two-dimensional kind of thing going on that if I just know enough, I'll do the right things? Well, you know that's not true. What he's telling us to fixate on is the relationship that God has within of himself and the implications of what that means for you and I. Why else would he say, 
Fix it, uh, set your mind on things above where, where, where God is, where, with Christ, and, si- and seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why would he add that clarification? What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? What's he doing? He's interceding, isn't he? Who's he interceding for? For us, right? All of, all of what Christ is doing right now, the whole reason that he came to earth, that he died a sinner's death, that he rose from the dead, is so that he could go sit at the, the Father's right hand and make us known to the Father, to forgive us of our sins, to cast them as far as the east is from the west, because we are covered by his blood. When you set your mind on that reality and the implications of it, it changes your identity. And when your identity is changed... When you realize that you are a child of God and that because God exists outside of time and space and Jesus intercedes outside of time and space, the problems can kind of just fall away sometimes because God's got a lot of responsibility and he can handle it all. The the problem is, is that we get in front of God, right? We run to Egypt because we think the famine is a problem, not a gift. The only way that we can, and this word, even set your mind, we think about it as just a cognitive thing, but even in the Greek language, there's not really an English word for phreneo, which is this word for mind. It really involves the cognitive, but also the visceral kind of heart gut level of knowing God, of setting our mind on things above. Because why? Because the, the, the thing that Jesus came to restore was not your doctrine, It was a relationship with God, and you need good doctrine because of that relationship. Amen? That's why we need it. And so when 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 the 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 famines of our life um, are the predominant compass of of our of our hearts, the guiding thing, the guiding kind of principle, um, there's there's no telling what's possible with us, right? I mean, Abram, we look at him, we're like, man, he really blew it. I wouldn't put it past me to do that same thing if I was in the situation. And I think that type of humility is what God's after in us. And, and when we realize that, Paul says something needs to happen in Christians' lives. There needs to be a funeral, he says. Um, For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because you know what? I am so selfish like Abram. I am so selfish. If Abram would have known at a gut level that his identity is solely based on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, not because he took care of his wife by scheming up this big plan. You just, it just changes the way you live day in, day out. It changes the priorities that you have. It changes the way that you face adversity, right? Christ, if there's anything that 2020 exposed, it was, it was how much we need a theology of famine, right? How much we need a space for that, to see it as a gift, as an opportunity for God. And, you know, when you, you, we, we're tempted to think that the desires are the problem, whatever your Egypt that you run down to is. But C.S. Lewis preached this sermon that was just amazing. It's, they published it. It's called The Weight of Glory. And he, he dealt with this idea of desires because so many times we think, if I could just manage my desires, then I might walk more faithfully with God. And C.S. Lewis says, listen, it's not your desires that are the problem. In fact, uh, he, he says... Um, in the weight of glory, he says, um, uh, what is that quote? We are far too easily pleased is what he says. So it's not that like, you know, uh, 
that, that finding satisfaction in the things of this world is the problem. It's the problem that they actually satisfy us. He uses this illustration of, it's like a boy that grew, that grew up in the slums, a little, a little boy that grew up in the slums and he's making mud pies and he's just thinking, wow, this is as good as it gets and he doesn't understand that he and his family could be experiencing a holiday at the sea. For us, when we are satisfied by the Egypts that we run to, we're just settling for mud pies. And God has infinitely more pleasure in mind for you than you have in mind for yourself. The question is, will we trust him in how to receive it? And that's, what, that's really what Abram is wrestling through here. He's working out his faith and it's a really deceptive thing that he does. The problem is that Egypt is more satisfying than the promise of God. I mean, even let's, let's step it out and zoom it out a little bit more here. This isn't just a problem in his marriage, right? If God doesn't answer by grace in the next verses we're gonna look at, you and I are not followers of Christ. The whole promise hinged on Abraham and Sarah staying married and having a kid. Not from him, I, I'm, not from him giving his wife to, I had another word in mind I'm not gonna use. Him giving his wife to uh, uh, the Pharaoh, right? No. And so they had the potential to blow the entire thing up. And I, I think the reason that God allows this to happen is so that it'll show us if the father of faith has to wrestle and grow in faith, why do we get so disappointed with ourselves when we have to grow too? When we have to face famine, when we have to face suffering, they are opportunities to finish our faith, church. The, the last thing we see is this, and it's the most beautiful thing of the whole story, is that God brings us back through grace. <clears throat> Genesis 17 through 20. The, the, the amazing part of this story and the reality of it for us is that Jesus doesn't flinch when you go down to Egypt. He's still seated at the right hand of the Father, still calling you his. The journey back might be painful, but he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his desires and his heart and his work and his mission to redeem us because we fiddle around with Egypt. The thing that he just wants us to see is there's so much joy in seeing him provide for us, him meet our, our deepest needs and desires. Verse 17 says this, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she's my sister, so that I took her for my own wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And the Pharaoh gave men orders concerning them, and they sent him away with his wife and all they had. So we don't really know the details of how involved Sarah and Pharaoh got, the ruler of Egypt. Probably... Most commentators think it probably wasn't significant because there was a time when you took a wife, there was a time of uh, basically uh, that you made sure she wasn't pregnant. And so that was probably during this time. But we do know something really interesting, right? Who does God take Abram's sin out on? Pharaoh, right? Takes it out on him. Why did he take it out on Abram? Isn't that a picture of what Jesus has done? God has taken our sin out on 
Jesus. That's what the cross is. It's a foreshadowing of how redemption will come to, to Egypt and how God will be gracious to us. And, you know, it's interesting because it, it also sounds a lot like the Exodus story in the book of Exodus, right? Pharaoh gets so fed up with what's happening that he says, get out of here. Now he chases them down after that, but he says, get, get out of here. He says the same thing to Abram. And what happens also to Abram is that he says, just take everything with you as well. Now that was probably an awkward ride home, right? Back to, back to Israel, right? It's probably a little awkward, right? Um, but what we do know is that God didn't stop loving Abram because of his sin. And God restored the relationship with Sarah, even though he'll pull the same thing again, right? In Genesis chapter 20. Oh, and wait, his son will also pull the same thing again in Genesis chapter 26. Because like father, like son. The temptation for, to, to, uh, for deception is so real to Christians when we have opportunities to exercise faith because it is so scary to trust God. If it's not scary for you to trust God, you might not be following God, right? If, 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 it, doesn't, if it doesn't cause you to pause and say, God, are you calling me to this? You, you might wanna see who you're following because the American dream is not the best pathway for faithfulness to God, okay? It's, it's, it's kind of like that C.S. Lewis mud pies thing, right? I don't, I don't want us to get to the end of our lives and realize that we've gained the whole world and lost our souls, right? So, you know, the, the history of God's people, including us, is one of trying to run to our own Egypts. These places of false security to find relief and, and the opportunities are endless and they are as diverse as, you know, as the city of Atlanta and more. You know, every, there are so many opportunities to, to cultivate and create our own Egypts to run to. But God is so gracious that he exposes this truth, right? Even for, even for Pharaoh and for um, Abram, God reveals truth to Abram through who? Pharaoh, right? He says, you can walk in the light, basically. I already know everything and Pharaoh knows it. The same thing happens with us. When God exposes the truth, it's intended to, to convict us, not in punishment, we, there are consequences of that, but for the opportunity to respond in faith and have God's pleasure in our lives as we live so we can have joy. I, I've got my own, um, I've got so many tendencies like this to be, to, to kind of create my own pathway forward. You're never gonna look at a snowplow the same after I share this with you, but um, whenever I was a youth pastor in Indiana, and you've got your own stories like this too, just know that I know that. Um, but I was a youth pastor in Indiana and we had had our first child, Tatum. And, um, you know, we, we had felt led, Megan specifically felt led and I kind of felt led that she should stay home. The only problem was is that it kind of drastically changes your lifestyle, right? Uh, when you go to a single family income with a youth pastor. And so, um, I, you know, I would do stupid stuff like walk in the house after she had been at home with Tatum all day and say, wow, you know, I really thought you would have got the dishes done today. Or wow, you, you know, you didn't fold the laundry today. I would say so many passive aggressive things that were so dumb and stupid and she's been so gracious to me. But one day I was just so frustrated um, that, that I decided to take matters into my own hand. And so I showed up uh, with my Dodge Ram pickup truck with a snowplow hooked on the front of it one night. And she's like, what in the world are you doing? And I'm like, well, you know, if we, if we can't, uh, you know, the, if we can't provide for ourselves the way that we need to, I'm gonna make it happen. And so therefore, the course of a week, I was youth pastor by day, snowplow guy by night. And it was like, it was so exhausting, right? And, you know, 
the people that I was working with at the church, they just looked at me like I was a complete idiot showing up with this huge snowplow and, you know, and the, but the, the, the reality of it was this, not once in that progression of events did I ask God to provide for me, not once until the Lord met me through my wife as he often does. And I just said, what in the world am I doing? And God graciously allowed me to sell that snowplow, right? Because um, it's not on the front of my truck anymore. But, but it's a, it served as an illustration for me of how tempting it is to go down to Egypt and chart my own path. And, and as we, as we kind of close out the sermon here, I, I want you to consider the possibility of confronting the famine with an attitude of faith instead of just getting busy planning stuff. And we're gonna, be, we're gonna fail at this, but God has a history of being gracious with his children, doesn't he? And so because of that, we can, we can fail. We can, we can even fail and not get it right, and God will still love us and change us and grow us. So may our attitude be like the, the, the little boy's father in Mark chapter nine. He was really sick, and he wanted him to be healed. And, and Jesus said, if you would believe, you know, I can do anything. And what did the, what did the young man's father say? I believe, but... Help my unbelief, right? That is our prayer this morning, church. I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you uh, that it does not change. I thank you that you called Abram and you knew how sinful he was, but you gave him the gift of faith and you want to show us that you're going to continue working out that gift of faith in us as long as we walk the face of this earth, that, that you are working all things, famines included, together for our good and your glory. And Father, even, even when we mean things for evil, even when others mean things for evil, you use them as good. And so Father, there's really one, only one pathway for us and it's upward trajectory toward you. So Father, I pray we would we would learn to trust you when it seems like the road has ran out and we feel like we have to come up with a solution on our own. I pray that we trust you because you solved the problems we didn't even know we had in Jesus. Pray that Jesus would be really, really good news to us, that his promise would mean so much more than any problem that we face this week. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.